Chapter the Twenty Sixth of the Manchester Man by Mrs. G. Linnaeus Banks. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. On the Portico Steps. Between that expedition to Whaley Bridge, with its terminal connubial conversation, and the breakage of Augusta Ashton's collarbone, rather more than six months intervened. Six months during which Mr. Clegg, as his good master had anticipated, felt the solitary state of his trim sitting-room somewhat oppressive, the permission to receive his old friends becoming a nullity on their removal. He occupied a position midway between parlour and kitchen, above his old associates of the porringers, the fireside settle, and the sanded stone floor, and beneath the family seated round the tea-urn on cushioned chairs and Brussels carpet. Towards the former, he cast few backward looks of regret. He had put his past behind him, but, oh, who shall tell his unuttered longings for the open sesame to that paradise of which he had had one rapturous glimpse, and one only, that paradise where his master's daughter, so high above him, moved like a seraph, and filled the air with harmony. I am afraid that at this time he brooded over his orphanhood, and that unknown father who had disappeared so mysteriously, and strained his soaring thoughts in their flight towards possibilities more than was good for him. He was too much alone for one of his years, and there were times in those long candle-lit winter evenings when books and pencils dropped from his wearied hands, and for lack of a companion he held dreamy converse with the fire. Of course his library was restricted, and there were no institutions in Manchester at that time where young men of his class could meet for mutual improvement, or that mental polish caused by the attrition of mind upon mind. Occasionally, at long intervals, and at first to the utter confusion of James, Captain Travis had inquired for Mr. Clegg, and been shown into the little sitting-room, with a disregard to caste very creditable to both of them, and now and then Mr. Chadwick and Mr. Ashton would drop in together for half an hour's chat, the gratitude of the former being deeper than the surface. But rarely did a feminine face, save Cicely's, brighten up his solitude, and she, devoted to her young mistress, had always something to say about Augusta, if only what she wore or how she looked, which sent him off into dreamland immediately. Sunday was a very chequered day, when he missed his old friends most. True, he followed the family to church, perhaps carried Augusta's prayer-book, exchanged a word of kindly greeting with old Mrs. Clues and Parson Brooks, who was not as hale as he had been, but there was no old Simon to grip his hand, no best to give him a motherly smile, and unless the weather was fine enough for a ramble in the fields with Nelson for companion, the rest of the day was very dull indeed. The fan which broke Augusta's collarbone broke down a barrier for Jabez. No personal sacrifice attended the service he rendered. He but went and came as an active messenger, but he went and came with intelligence and promptitude, and exercised for mother and daughter both the care and forethought of a much older man. In the father's absence, the father was not missed. What came under Mrs. Ashton's own eye, Mrs. Ashton could appreciate, and the commendation of Dr. Hull was not without its weight. He had said, Capital fellow to send for a doctor, that messenger of yours, Mrs. Ashton, a determined, persistent fellow, 
would see me and haul me off with only half a dinner, though I protested, and he had already got a surgeon there before me. His thought about the sedan chair which he had accompanied to Mosley Street to ensure care on the part of the chairmen, and had ordered into the very lobby of the house, the cautious manner in which he had lifted Augusta thence and borne her to the ready couch, coupled with his protection of her daughter in the theatre the night before, weighed down the scale already trembling in the balance, and Mrs. Ashton's, Jabez, I am deeply indebted to you, was not mere words. He was her messenger to the Chadwicks, her amanuensis to Mr. Ashton, and when Ellen and her mother arrived somewhere about tea-time, for the second occasion he was invited to join their party, and one, if not two, pair of cheeks, burned as the invitation was given. Then, the night Mr. Ashton returned home, to find Augusta as an invalid, he was gratified to see Jabez again at the tea-table, and after that at odd times, until the restraint upon him gradually wore away, and he would read to Augusta and Ellen, as the latter sat at work, and do his best to make the time pass pleasantly. Next, Mr. Ashton took it into his head to teach him backgammon and cribbage, to help make his own evenings at home more lively, and Mrs. Chadwick, who for some occult reason had resisted her husband's desire to show courtesy to his preserver, could scarcely be less gracious than her grander sister, who owed him so much less. So now the green parlour door in Oldham Street was open to him, and as Jabez refreshed his memory with Hogarth's prints, he felt that he had made another step up the ladder. Those were halcyon days. While Augusta, too tall to be robust, recovered so slowly, and was so much gratified by his attempts to entertain her. Halcyon days for more than one. Yet ere Jabez was out of his apprenticeship, or Augusta had left her pillowed sofa, a pebble was thrown into the stream which broke the surface of the tranquil waters, and disturbed them for ever. Mr. Ashton was one of the original shareholders in the portico, a classic stone building erected in 1806 as a library and reading room on the other side of Mosley Street, which, with its pillared façade and flight of steps, like an Ionic temple, looked down on the plain red brick front of the assembly rooms, though its opposite neighbour stood quite as high in repute, and was equally exclusive in its constitution. Mr. Aspinall, the Cannon Street cotton merchant, who dined with the Scramble Club, instituted by businessmen whose homes were in the suburbs, was likewise a shareholder in the portico, and from constant meeting at the long tables within the bookshelved galleried walls of its lofty reading room, he and Mr. Ashton had a tolerably lengthy acquaintance, although it had never ripened into intimacy. The men were so dissimilar. Charlotte Wormsley was naturally troubled by the results of Madame Broadbent's notions of discipline, and not unnaturally, considering the condition in which Ben Travis had taken him home, blamed her husband as the primary cause. As naturally, he shifted the onus to the shoulders of Lawrence Aspinall, and taking him to task, plainly told him he ought to apologise. Lawrence snatched at the proposal. "'My dear Jack, nothing would please me better. I'll make a thousand apologies if you'll only introduce me.' John Wormsley had had quite enough of introductions. Besides, he stood in some awe of Mrs. Ashton, and did not know how she might take it, especially as his friend Aspinall had acquired the character of a wild spark. He emphatically declined, 
but if Lawrence Aspinall once set his mind on a thing, he would attain it, if within the range of possibility, whether by fair means or foul, whatever might be the consequences. For a few days he was on his best behaviour at home, and having won his father over by expressions of deep contrition and promises of reformation, and the assurance that he would never again do anything unbecoming to a gentleman, he prevailed on him to introduce him to Mr. Ashton, with a view to making his own apologies in person. "'Well, Lawrence, you can go with me to the portico to-morrow morning, and if Mr. Ashton is there, we will see what can be done.' The tone in which this was said clearly implying, if we seek an introduction to the Ashtons, for the purpose of making the amende honorable as befits gentlemen, there can be no doubt of its acceptance. But when they met Mr. Ashton on the steps of the portico the following morning, the self-complacence of the lofty gentleman received a slight but uncontemplated check. Mr. Ashton nodded to Mr. Aspinall with a beaming face, and would have passed his acquaintance with a mere good morning, but the other stopped, and after shaking hands and remarking that trade was slack, presented with due formality the handsome, elegant, six feet of dandyism who bore him company. "'Mr. Ashton, let me make you acquainted with my son, sir. Mr. Ashton, my son, Lawrence. Lawrence, Mr. Ashton.' The young gentleman raised his stylish beaver from his rich coppery curls, and bowed with courtly grace in acknowledgment of Mr. Ashton's formal bow, whilst his father continued, almost in the tone of one who confers an honour. "'The fact is, my son, sir, desires an opportunity of expressing to Miss Ashton his deep regret for the indiscretion of which he was guilty in the lobby of the Theatre Royal some ten days back.' The smile faded from the face of Mr. Ashton, who, with a reserve very foreign to him, put his hand into his pocket for his snuff-box, instead of extending it to the young man, and, tapping it with a little impatience, caught at his words. "'Indiscretion, sir, what you are pleased to call indiscretion, has placed my daughter in the doctor's hands with a broken collar-bone.' Before Mr. Aspinall could reply, Lawrence, better skilled to temporise, interposed, "'So, to my infinite regret, my friend Mr. Wormsley has already informed me, sir, and I assure you, I take shame to myself that any word or action of mine should have led to consequences so lamentable.' No one, sir, can deplore the injury Miss Ashton has sustained more than myself, the unhappy cause. It is this, Mr. Ashton, which impels me to seek an opportunity to express the sensibility of my grave offence, and my extreme regret, to Mrs. Ashton and Miss Ashton in person. I cannot rest until I have implored their pardon. The tones in which this apologetic speech was delivered, were at once so suave, remorseful, and sympathetic, that Mr. Ashton, whose sternness was seldom of long duration, was considerably mollified. He looked at the handsome, dashing blade before him, whose blue eyes seemed full of gentleness and pity, and felt as though the boy he had seen torturing old Brooks, and the yeomanry officer who had slashed at Mr. Chadwick and Jabez Clegg, could never be one and the same. He reverted to the latter circumstance. I think, young sir, you owe an apology to someone else under my roof, the young man who received the sabre-cut you designed for my brother-in-law, Mr. Chadwick. Aspinall's handsome face flushed. His father's quick reply gave him time to think. 
"'You surely, Mr. Ashton, would not expect my son to apologise to an apprentice lad, a mere college boy?' "'Just so. I would expect him to apologise to anyone he had injured, were it a beggar.' Here the son interposed. "'My good sir, do not remind me of the horrors of that dreadful day. I shudder when I recall it. We acted under orders, and I swear I was utterly unconscious and irresponsible for my actions throughout the whole affray.' and Lawrence seemed desirous to wash his hands of the responsibility. "'The fact is,' said Mr. Aspinall, coming to his son's rescue, "'Lawrence had taken more wine than his young head would stand on both occasions. It takes years to season a cask, you know, Mr. Ashton, and we must not be too hard on young fellows if they slip sometimes. We have all had some wild oats to sow.' This was a platitude of the period, but Mr. Ashton's just so— was not a cordial assent, and Lawrence, fearing the conversation was taking an unfortunate turn, led it back to its original request. But Mr. Ashton tapped his box, and offering it to his interlocutors, took a pinch himself, and then a second, before he came to decision. It was evidently a debatable question. I will mention your request to Mrs. Ashton, young gentleman, and if I find her agreeable to receive you, I can take you across with me to-morrow morning provided you meet me here. Good day. Mr. Aspinall's good day was somewhat stiff. He had held his head very high all his life, metaphorically as well as physically, and was not disposed to be snubbed by one whose status he considered scarcely on a par with his own. He was disposed to look on his son's peccadilloes as some of those wild oats which young gentlemen of spirit were expected to sow, and considered his fine figure and beautiful features, his education, accomplishments, and prospects, passports to any society, and that Mr. Ashton should for one moment hesitate to open his heart and his doors to his son was an indignity not to be borne. The fact is, Lawrence, that if you make an apology to those people after this, you have less spirit than I take you to have, was his conclusion. Never you mind, father, I know what I'm about. I want to get my foot in there, answered subtle Lawrence, and he managed it. Mr. Ashton went home to dinner, full of his conversation on the portico steps, and set his romantic daughter's heart in a flutter by mooting the point at issue in her presence. Oh, papa, do bring him. I want to see him again. He's so handsome. Handsome is as handsome does, Augusta was Mrs. Ashton's commentary on that young lady's impulsive exclamation. "'Charlotte says he is very wild,' remarked Ellen, "'and I feel as if I should shudder at the sight of him after his conduct at Peterloo.' "'You don't shudder when Captain Travis calls, and you don't shut the door in John Wormsley's face, and they may have done things just as bad, if you did but know it, Ellen,' retorted Augusta, standing on the defensive for the absent Adonis." "'Just so, my dear, so they might,' admitted Mr. Ashton, whilst Ellen held her peace, silenced by something in her cousin's retort. "'Yes, William, but look on the poor bandaged neck and shoulders of our child, and think of that ruffian's cruelty to Jabez and others when a schoolboy. I don't think either John Wormsley or Mr. Travis could have done anything so bad.' "'Well, but, mamma," argued spoiled Augusta, "'Jabez forgave him.' and I think Madame Broadbent is more to blame than Mr. Aspinall. He only offered to bring me home. 
Mrs. Ashton shook her head as she rose from table. "'Besides, Mamma, he says he only wants to apologise, and you know you need not invite him again unless you like. It would be so rude to refuse.' "'Just so,' assented Mr. Ashton, willing to humour his pet in her invalid state, and perhaps it might do the young fellow good to see the consequences of his folly. As usual, where Augusta enlisted her father on her side, Mrs. Ashton's descent grew feebler. The next day Mr. Ashton made at least one false step in his life, and brought over his own threshold a blight. Faultless were the curves of the stylish hat, faultless the fit of pantaloons and coat, and hessian boots and york tan gloves, graceful the figure they adorned, graceful the apology tendered so adroitly, more to the mother than to the daughter. But if ever a graceless good-for-nothing cast a shadow on a good man's hearth, it was the wolf in sheep's clothing, whose hungry jaws were watering for the pet lamb of the fold, and who made so courtly an exit, full in the sight of Jabez, as he crossed the end of the hall to his solitary dinner in his own room. End of chapter the 26th